I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On July 9, 2018, President Trump nominated Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. And at around the same time, Justice Neil Gorsuch finished his first term on the Supreme Court. In this podcast today, we will discuss Justice Gorsuch's first term and contrast it to the kind of justice that Judge Kavanaugh might become. Joining us in this important conversation are two of America's leading commentators on the Supreme Court. Brian Garad is the chief counsel of the Constitutional Accountability Center, and Elizabeth Slatterly is a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Brian, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let's jump right in. Uh, Elizabeth, you published uh, not long ago a piece called Neil Gorsuch Just Finished Year One on the Supreme Court. Here's how he's making his mark. Uh, how is he making his mark, and what judicial philosophy has he displayed in cases from his maiden opinion, Henson versus Satinander, to uh, other cases uh, throughout the year? Well, I think uh, Justice Gorsuch made a splash in his first full term on the court. He he jumped right in, ready ready to do the job. Uh, he wrote seven majority opinions this this term, uh, including one that I think is in a pretty high profile case involving arbitration. It was decided 5-4. Uh, and uh, I think a thread running through a lot of his his majority opinions, his concurrences and dissents, his questions at oral argument this term, um, get at, is the judiciary the, the right branch of government for, for the litigants in the case, or should, should they be going to Congress? And, you know, his his view uh, of of the judicial power seems to be that the judiciary is best when it's restrained and refuses invitations to update laws or uh, uh, revise text and just interpret them according to their their plain meaning. Many thanks for that. Brian, you too wrote a review of Justice Gorsuch's first year in the Take Care blog, and you emphasized his willingness to overrule precedent, ranging from uh, that involving uh, public unions in the Janus case to uh, South Dakota and Wayfair involving out-of-state internet retailers. Tell us about Justice Gorsuch and his attitude toward precedent. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that was most noticeable and uh, notable about Justice Gorsuch's first full term on the court was his willingness to um, vote to overrule precedent, to call into question longstanding precedent. You know, one prominent example that you mentioned is the Janus case in which the court's majority um, overruled a 41-year-old precedent upholding the constitutionality of state laws that allowed public sector unions um, to require non-members to pay their fair share of the cost of collective bargaining. Um, you know, Justice Kagan, dissenting in that case, uh, you know, put it well. She said, rarely, if ever, has the court overruled a decision, let alone one of this import, with so little regard for the usual principles of stare decisis. Um, another really interesting case um, in which the court um, didn't go as far as Justice Gorsuch would have liked for it to um, was Abbott v. Perez. This was a case um, challenging uh, Texas's redistricting map. Um, Justice Gorsuch joined Justice Thomas's one-paragraph concurrence, uh, which took the position that the Voting Rights Act simply does not apply to redistricting. Um, and what neither of them said in that very short concurrence was that 
taking that position would require overruling countless Supreme Court cases um, that have held just the opposite. Um, so in case after case, Justice Gorsuch was willing to either vote to overrule precedent or to call into question really longstanding um, precedent. Um, you know, one thing that has been very clear about Justice Gorsuch since he first joined the bench is that he is not shy about his views, um, and that was on full display in his first full term. Thank you so much for that. All right, well, let's jump right into the substantive areas and review Justice Gorsuch's holdings. We'll begin with the Fourth Amendment and his dissenting opinion in the Carpenter case, how interesting it was that in his confirmation hearings, he repeatedly talked about the Jones GPS case and the need to resurrect a property-based approach to the Fourth Amendment. He did that in the Carpenter case in the most interesting way. Uh, Elizabeth, can you tell us about his holding and reasoning in Carpenter? Yeah, so in the Carpenter case, this is where the the majority of the court held that the government conducts a search for the purposes of the Fourth Amendment when it accesses historical cell phone location records from a wireless provider. Now, four justices dissented, all with different ideas about why the majority was wrong. Gorsuch was one of them, and he wrote that Mr. Carpenter may have been able to assert a property right in the cell site records, but he had failed to do so, and, and Mr. Carpenter had only pursued his expectation of privacy in, in those records under an earlier Supreme Court case, the Katz decision, and and, and he express, expresses an interest in uh, in potentially uh, revisiting the Katz decision. He said that this was something that goes against the text and original understanding of the Fourth Amendment. And I, I believe there was another Fourth Amendment case this term where Justice Thomas wrote a, a similar either uh, concurrence or dissent uh, flagging Katz a, a, as something he would be interested in in uh, taking a second look at uh, that, that Gorsuch also joined uh, along with Thomas in that case. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Brian. what would be the consequences of uh, Justice Gorsuch's approach in future cases? Do, do you read him to want to overrule Katz? And in that case, would protections for digital uh, privacy be reduced? Uh, in, in a Tenth Circuit case, Justice Gorsuch uh, tried to apply a trespass case uh, reasoning to digital property. And, and my question is, if, if, if his approach were adopted, would we have less uh, privacy or uh, the same amount as we do now in the digital age? Well, I, I think it's really unclear. I and mean, I do think that he seemed very skeptical of Katz and of the court's precedence on third-party doctrines, this idea that um, you know people lose a reasonable expectation of privacy um, when information is given to third parties. Carpenter was definitely on my list of cases in which um, Justice Gorsuch um, expressed a real interest in overruling um, other cases. Um, I, I don't think that his property-based approach um, will necessarily entail um, reduced protection for digital privacy interests. He actually, um, it was kind of an unusual or interesting opinion. He seemed very concerned about what happened, um, and yet ultimately um, would have ruled for the government because he said that um, the petitioner in that case didn't make the, the right kinds of property-based arguments. Um, so I, I think what exactly that will mean for Fourth Amendment protection very much remains to be seen, and it'll be interesting to see um, whether he can bring um, others on the court over to his view. Um, the Fourth Amendment is obviously um, a really interesting area because it's one in which we also see the Chief Justice um, casting votes um, often with the more liberal members of the court, as he did in Carpenter. And he, too, has expressed a real concern for the really sweeping and um, significant ramifications um, that follow from our digital devices and how much they open us up to um, surveillance and um, reduce privacy. Many thanks for that. 
Well, let us turn uh, next to the question of separation of powers and federalism. One of the big points that came up in Justice Gorsuch's confirmation hearings was his skepticism of so-called Chevron deference. That is the decision of judges to defer to the reasonable interpretations of administrative agencies. And in a case called Wisconsin Central versus United States, Justice Gorsuch wrote a majority opinion which touched on the question of Chevron deference. It's a complicated uh, issue, but uh, Elizabeth, what can we learn about Justice Gorsuch's views about Chevron and the administrative state from Wisconsin Central and other cases this term? Sure. So I think it was certainly uh, a, a concurrence that then Judge Gorsuch wrote on the Tenth Circuit uh, in this area, dealing with uh, his skepticism for Chevron deference, that really sort of brought him to national prominence. Uh, it was shortly after that that President Trump, uh, then candidate Trump, added him to um, to his his list of potential Supreme Court nominees. So we know that he's very skeptical about these agency deference doctrines. He joined with Justice Thomas in a dissent from denial of cert in, in a case that presently uh, that squarely presented the court with an opportunity to overrule uh, Seminole Rock or our deference, which is um, uh, a deference doctrine that that courts afford. Uh, Chevron-like deference to an agency's interpretation of their own regulations rather than their interpretation of the statutes that they're charged with administering. And so I, I think that, um, you know, this is this is an area to watch. And I thought that it was, it was very illuminating that at the end of the term, Justice Kennedy wrote a concurring opinion where he, he said, you know, uh, kind of flagging the issue that uh, he was starting to, to grow skeptical of of these agency do, uh, doctrine deference doctrines as well it seemed like um, not something you would kind of drop out there right before you're about to retire but I maybe it was the influence of his his former clerk working with him uh, for for over a year uh, maybe that influence was uh, was brought on by Justice Gorsuch interesting thank you for flagging Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion in the uh Pereira versus Sessions case. For listeners who want to check it out, Justice Kennedy said this analysis suggests an abdication of the judiciary's proper role in interpreting uh, federal statutes. Uh, Brian, what do you make of Justice Gorsuch's, what may be the opening shot in a campaign against Chevron deference, and what else can we learn about his views on federalism in cases like Artis versus District of Columbia, where he said that uh, it might uh, it may be only a small statute we're being we, inter we are interpreting, but the result the court reaches today represents no small intrusion on traditional state functions. Yeah, so I mean Chevron is definitely um, an area to watch. Elizabeth and I totally agree on that. Um, you know, as she noted, this is an area that um, Justice Gorsuch has been interested in um, for a long time, going back to his time on the Tenth Circuit, and something that, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, later on the podcast, uh, Judge Kavanaugh is also very interested in as well. And the future of Chevron deference is incredibly important. It sounds very arcane and wonky, um, but, you know, whether um, courts defer to expert administrative agencies when they regulate is critically important to the ability of the federal government to 
uh, enact all kinds of regulations that affect Americans in their daily lives, whether um, we have clean air to breathe and water to drink, whether um, our um, and how our employers, our, our work sites are regulated, um, whether there are consumer protections, uh, federal agencies um, enact regulations on all of these areas and many more. And so the extent to which um, courts defer um, to their reasonable interpreta- interpretation of statutes is just incredibly important. And, you know, what I think we saw this year in Justice Gorsuch's first full term on the court in his opinion about Chevron and in his votes um, in cases across a wide range of issues is his general hostility to this sort of regulation and his um, pro-corporate tilt. You know, in um, 10 different cases, the Chamber of Commerce filed a amicus brief um, in support of business interest, and in 90% of those cases, um, Justice Gorsuch voted with the Chamber, um, you know, making it more difficult for individuals to um, go into court, um, affecting the law in really significant ways. Thank you for that. Uh, let us turn to the First Amendment. There were many important First Amendment cases, ranging from the Janus Union case to the Masterpiece Cake uh, Religion and Free Speech case. Uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote separately in Masterpiece Cake, what can we tell about his views on the religion and free speech clauses from that uh, separate concurrence? Um, and what else do we learn about his First Amendment views? Elizabeth. Yeah, so in the, the Masterpiece decision, he, he wrote a separate concurrence. And um, if I recall, his concurrence focused on how the the state uh uh, the state um, civil rights commission had treated a few other similar sorts of cases um, where there were individuals coming into bakeries who wanted bakers to make, um, you know, cake, cakes with religious messages, um, and how how uh, how those individuals were treated when when they were brought before the the state civil rights commission. But I think the you know the I think that was kind of a, a decision where the court didn't decide all that much. They they left for another day the 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 real heart of the issue, the underlying and um, you know the underlying um, conflict between state anti discrimination laws and individuals who have a religious objection to um, you know being required to put their artistic talents towards celebrating a same sex. Wedding, um, so I, I think that's an issue we're likely to see uh, return to the court uh, in in the next few years. If I had to guess. Thanks for that, uh, Brian. Chief Justice Roberts uh, worked out a rather uh, exquisitely technical resolution to the masterpiece cake case, but Justice Gorsuch reached out to express his his own views about religious discrimination. Uh, what did we learn from them? How did they go further from than Chief Justice Roberts, and and are they different than Justice uh, Scalia or Thomas or the other conservative justices? Well, I think one theme we saw from Justice Gorsuch this year, in addition to an over- a willingness to overrule precedent, um, was a willingness to go out on his own and to go farther than even um, several of the other conservatives on the court. And I think Masterpiece um, is a great example of that. Um, and I'd actually look um, not at his separate concurrence, but at um, the the other separate concurrence written by Justice Thomas that he joined. Um, you know, as Elizabeth mentioned, the the court the court majority's decision in Masterpiece um, was really quite narrow, you know, focusing on this idea that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission exhibited um, some hostility to um, the religious um, views of the bakers. And so it was purely a, a decision under the free exercise 
clause of the First Amendment. Um, but but, the, but Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch um, would have gone much farther and decided the case um, under the free speech clause of the First Amendment um, in a decision that I think um, really is at odds with um, very well-settled First Amendment case law. I mean, the First Amendment um, doesn't give, it's never been understood to give commercial businesses the right to violate generally applicable public accommodation laws um, like the one at issue in Masterpiece. Um, but, you know, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch not content with the very narrow um, free exercise ruling um, that the court's majority reached would have gone, you know, much further. Thank you for that. Um, let's turn to one of Justice Gorsuch's uh, most important majority opinions in the Epic Systems case. Uh, he uh, refused to engage the policy debate about whether employers should be allowed to force workers to uh, forgo their rights to uh, collective bargaining. He said the policy may be debatable, but the law is clear. Um, Justice Ginsburg, by contrast, uh, addressed the policy issue and uh, turned to legislative history and current empirical evidence to argue the decision would lead to the under-enforcement of federal and state statutes designed to advance the well-being of vulnerable workers. Um, Elizabeth, what can we learn about Justice Gorsuch, uh, both from the holding and also his uh, method of statutory analysis in the Epic Systems case? Yeah, so I, I thought it was interesting that he ended up writing the majority opinion in, in this case that I think the average American uh, probably didn't hear about. Uh, or may not care that much about that, but that was very closely watched by uh, the Supreme Court bar. So this was the case, of course, where um, involving class action suits brought by employees um, uh, challenging or who, who had uh, said their employers failed to to provide adequate overtime pay, and the um, the thrust of the the issue was whether the employees could pursue a class action or collective litigation against an employer um, when they had a contract in place providing for individualized arbitration. Uh, so the court held that uh, the Federal Arbitration Act requires arbitration agreements providing for these individualized proceedings that that um, that these contracts must be enforced. And, and Gorsuch went back and looked at the, this 1925 act, the Federal Arbitration Act, um, and, and explained that Congress had specifically directed courts to respect and enforce the party's chosen arbitration procedures, and then that a, a later law, the National Labor Relations Act from 10 years later, passed in 1935, um, the employees in the case had, had argued that, that the NLRA had changed the way um, the Arbitration Act uh, applied, but Gorsuch wrote in his majority opinion that um, you know, there there wasn't a hint at the time that uh, that the NLRA was was supposed to displace the Arbitration Act, and it, it didn't meet the uh, the standard um, of the court's precedents. And uh, you know, as you as you mentioned, Justice Ginsburg dissented, and she said, you know, the majority was trying to go back to the Lochner era of overriding legislative policy judgments, and you know, trying to resurrect these uh, so-called yellow dog contracts where. Employees would agree, uh, you know, not to join a union as a condition of employment, and and Justice Gorsuch, um, you know, wasn't really willing to entertain uh, these claims, and uh, you know, he said, look, this is a that is a policy debate that should be had in the legislative branch, uh, and and the the text is clear here, and we ha we have to enforce the um, the arbitration agreement, whether or not we may think it's wise or good. Thanks so much for that, um, Brian. 
did, did, was Justice Gorsuch's analysis different than uh, Justice Scalia's uh, would have been? And is there anything distinctive about his approach to statutory analysis we learned from this important case? I mean, I think this is an area where, you know, it's, uh, uh, I think it's probably, I, I, sorry, I think this is an area where, you know, probably um, Justice Scalia would have come out the same way that Justice Gorsuch did. I mean, I think um, what both of them, um, what Justice Gorsuch at least missed, you know, in this case, as the dissent pointed out, um, was that, you know, when the FF, when the, sorry, I think this is an area in which Justice Scalia um, might well have come out the same way um, as Justice Gorsuch did. But I think what's important to recognize is what Gorsuch, uh, Justice Gorsuch missed in um, his analysis for the court. Um, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, in her dissent, the FAA was enacted um, in the 1920s to enable merchants of roughly equal bargaining power to agree to arbitrate commercial disputes. It, it wasn't about the kind of dispute um, that it's at issue here, where it's an employer um, versus an individual employee. And the you know result of the court's decision in this case, um, which is to force individuals who have some kind of dispute with their employer, you know, they weren't given the overtime pay that they say they're due, um, forcing them to engage in individual arbitration. Um, notwithstanding that federal law provides that employees can engage in concerted um, action to enforce their rights, um, the result of that's going to be, as Justice Ginsburg noted in her dissent, um, the under-enforcement of federal and state statutes designed to advance the well-being of vulnerable workers. So, you know, this is a case that um, may not have gotten as much attention um, as it should because it's just incredibly, um, incredibly important. Thank you for that. Uh, let's turn to some cases where Justice Gorsuch diverged from the rest of the court or from his conservative colleagues. Uh, one was the Sveen versus Mellon case. It was an eight to one. Justice Gorsuch was the only dissenter. The question was whether there should be retroactive application of Minnesota's revocation on divorce statute uh, or whether that violates the Constitution's contracts clause. And Justice Gorsuch acknowledged the judicial power to declare a law unconstitutional should never be lightly invoked. But in this case, he said the court should have done that because the framers were absolute when they drafted the contracts clause. If a law contract creates any impairment to a contract, it violates the clause, no exception. Um, Elizabeth, what, what do you make of this uh, lonely dissent and, and what it says about Justice Gorsuch's willingness to uh, strike down uh, laws? Yeah, it, it certainly was a, a lonely dissent. Even his um, his otherwise good friend, uh, Justice Thomas, didn't, didn't seem to go along with him in this case. Uh, so, you know, he, he showed a willingness to uh, to go back to looking at the, the history of constitutional provisions. And he argued that this retroactive application of um, this revocation upon divorce law uh, was inconsistent with with the history of the contracts clause. And he he said that the founders took the view that um, treating existing contracts as inviolable um, would benefit society by ensuring that all persons could count on the ability to enforce promises lawfully made to them, even if their agreements later proved unpopular with some passing majority. So it, it, it certainly was a, a kind of a, a bold, um, a bold uh, dissent, but, uh, you know, it shows that he, he has strong views of the law and he's not uh, afraid to express them. Um, in, in, indeed. And, and, and Brian, how in that sense would you contrast Justice Gorsuch to Justice Thomas, who also is, has strong views, is not afraid to express them, and is willing to overturn precedent. Uh, and yet in this case, they reached a different result on originalist grounds. How would you compare the two? 
I mean, I think that they are very similar in that regard. I mean, one thing that um, has set Justice Thomas apart during his time on the court is his um, unvarying commitment to what he perceives to be um, the correct originalist result and his willingness to um, adopt that result, no matter how many or how few of his colleagues agree, no matter um, how consistent or not that view is with past precedent. And that seems to be the same um, approach that Justice Gorsuch um, brings to the court, you know, again, even this early in his tenure. Their difference in Sabine, I think, just highlights that, you know, different people um, can look to text and history um, and find uh, different results. Uh, Thanks for that. We have... uh... Another case in which Justice Gorsuch joined the liberals, a criminal case, it was called Class versus United States. Uh, the 6-3 decision was written by Justice Breyer, and he held that a guilty plea by itself does not bar a federal criminal defendant from challenging the constitutionality of the statute of conviction on direct appeal. And Justice Gorsuch, um, in his uh uh, separate opinion, said that he traced a favorable non-waiver doctrine all the way back to 1869. So, uh, Elizabeth, what does that uh, tell us about him? I, I have to be honest, I'm not familiar with uh, with this decision. It must be one of the ones that kind of flew under uh, under the radar. But I think it it is interesting that you know uh, sometimes there were there were some strange bedfellows uh, in the in the lineup of important cases this term. You know, there was another case where, where it was Gorsuch along with the uh, the other four, um, you know, more liberal, uh, I mean, you, people call them the more liberal members of the court, Sessions versus DeMaia, um, also uh, a, a cr- criminal law in, in immigration case. Um, so it's interesting that he's, you know, he's willing to strike out his own path and, uh, you know, he he's interested more in um, his approach to the law, then, you know, whether it's going to make him friends on, on the court or off. Thank you for that. No trouble about missing class. I'm relying here on the incredible prep of our constitutional prep team. So I've got a great uh, cheat sheet here. But <laughs> <laughs> Brian, um, Justice Scalia sometimes joined the liberals in criminal cases. Uh, is this vote by Justice Gorsuch a sign that, that he too, in, in, in some cases, may be willing to favor criminal defendants when he thinks text and history requires it? I think it's really early. You know, certainly um, it, it could mean that, but I think we'll need to see a lot more cases to have a sense of whether he will consistently um, follow text and history even when they benefit criminal defendants. I mean, to Justice Scalia, um, that was very important. You know, he talked about how if it were up to his personal views, he would, you know, lock everyone up and throw away the keys, um, but sometimes text and history wouldn't allow him to follow that result. And the Fourth Amendment um, is a fantastic example of where Justice Scalia um, often wrote very strong, very powerful opinions um, advocating for a robust um, understanding of the protections provided by the Fourth Amendment. Um, I don't think we um, have evidence yet that, that Justice Gorsuch will end up in the same place, um, but time will definitely tell. Thanks for that. Um, Elizabeth, in your great piece about Justice Gorsuch's first year, you mentioned his uh, vigorous participation at oral argument, uh, including his intervention in the Minnesota Voters Alliance case where he was skeptical of Minnesota's position that it could ban voters from wearing T-shirts with some of the Bill of Rights and not others. Were there other moments at oral argument where Justice Gorsuch's intervention struck you as uh, significant? Um, well, you know, early in in the term, he, he was uh, sort of, it seemed like he was um, irritating some more liberal commentators who, who follow the court uh, because he had a frequent practice of saying things like, 
uh, you know, he would preface his questions by saying, let's start with the Constitution. It's always always a good place to look or always a good place to start. Um, but I think a, a common theme through through the oral arguments uh, and his questions were, you know, always um, trying to come back to the text of the constitutional provision that the, the court was being asked to construed or the the actual text of the the statute they were looking at and, and really trying to drill down to what does the text say is it clear and and what can it tell us uh, that textualism was very strong uh brian what struck you about justice gorsuch and oral argument i think that's right i mean he at oral argument as in his writings um was willing to chart his own course and so we would sometimes see him asking about you know very particular things that did not appear to be um, topics that were of great interest to his colleagues, um, but that never seemed to bother him. You know, Justice Gorsuch um, clearly has a very strong view of the law and what it requires and what is significant, and um, he is willing to, you know, follow that, again, you know, regardless of how many or how few of his colleagues are on the same page. Thanks for that. Um, and then in terms of broader themes that emerged from his opinions, Elizabeth, in, in your in your piece, you talked about his maiden opinion, the Henson case, where he said the proper role of the judiciary is to apply, not amend the work of the people's representatives. And you also noted that in his dissent from a case dealing with federal courts exercising authority over state law claim, claims, he said, we've wandered so far from the idea of the federal government of limited and enumerated powers that we've begun to lose sight of what it looked like in the first place. What does that tell you about some of the principles that matter most to him? Yeah, I think uh, you know first and foremost, uh, textualism is an is an important uh, an important thing to to Justice Gorsuch. Um, you know, he's he's very concerned about the growth of the modern administrative state and uh, and the proper separation of powers uh, between the branches of government. Brian, what about uh, you when it comes to principles that matter to Justice Gorsuch? Well, I I think you know one thing that's clear um, after this first full term is that. Um, as we've said, you know, he um, is often willing to go further and in different directions than his colleagues. You know, he certainly um, talks a very good game about um, originalism and text and history. I don't think he always hewed to it um, quite as closely as I, it sounds like um, Elizabeth did. Um, but, you know, one thing it's clear we're going to get from Justice Gorsuch in the years to come is um, lots of um, separate opinions, lots of um, a great willingness to um, stake out his own path. And I think what will be interesting to watch is, you know, whether and to what extent he's able to convince his colleagues um, to join him. Thanks for that. Um, as, as we as we sum up Justice Gorsuch, uh, Elizabeth, it's important to me that our great We the People listeners do not view all uh, justices in political terms, but understand uh, their judicial philosophies and also understand that not all originalists or pragmatists are alike. So in what sense did Justice Gorsuch's originalism differ from the originalism of Justice Scalia and Thomas, and what was distinctive about his approach? Well, I think, uh, you know, the the rev revocation upon divorce statute, uh, that case that, that we mentioned, um, as I think Brianne said, you know, Justice Thomas uh, did not see it the same way as, as Justice Gorsuch. And, you know, look, looking at at the same history of the of the contracts clause, um, there, there was also an, another case that I um, that I thought was was interesting. This term, the oil states decision, which uh, is, a, is a patent case and has to do with um, an administrative review process. 
where where private parties can challenge previously issued patents. And Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion upholding this process uh, against a, a challenge saying that this violated um, Article Three of the Constitution. And and Gorsuch wrote a dissent saying that you know history requires that the uh, the the judiciary resolve these types of disputes rather than an administrative body. And so I think it it will be interesting to see. Um, you know, as he as he gets more time on the Supreme Court under his belt, uh, how he and, and Thomas will continue to interplay and uh, and, you know, if they'll hold together uh, for many cases or uh, have different uh, approaches to the law. Thanks for that. Um, Brian, the Constitutional Accountability Center uh, is a wonderful organization that takes text and history seriously and argues that it sometimes leads to liberal rather than conservative results as a liberal originalist, how would you distinguish between uh, Justice Gorsuch's originalism and that of the other originalist justices? Well, I, I think, you know, a lot remains to be seen. You know, as Elizabeth mentioned, we obviously saw, you know, numerous cases this year in which um, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas weren't together, even though there were many, many cases in which they were. Um, Carpenter, you know, is another, the Fourth Amendment um, case we discussed earlier, is another example in which um, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, while both in dissent, um, you know, staked out very different positions. You know, obviously, as you mentioned, we at uh, the Constitutional Accountability Center um, believe very strongly in the text and history and values of the Constitution and the entire Constitution, so both the original text and the amendments that have um, reshaped it and redefined it over the course of our country's history. Um, you know, we uh, think that Justice Gorsuch, you know, this year um, often reached results that were at odds um, with that text and history and values of the entire Constitution, um, but we will, you know, look forward to the years ahead and continuing to see um, how he defines himself on the court. Thanks for that. Um, uh, Elizabeth, any final thoughts on Justice Gorsuch? Have we missed any cases? And uh, what do you want our listeners to know about the differences among uh, originalists and the degree to which originalism can, can predict a justice's approach in particular cases? Yeah, I think we've hit all of the high points of Justice Gorsuch's first uh, first year on on the bench, you know, I think uh, on the the Supreme Court bench, I, I think one thing I would point out is that um, you know it didn't take him any time to uh, to warm up to the role, and I think part of that uh, is a reflection of the fact that he had spent uh, a decade on on the Tenth Circuit as an appeals court judge, so he you know he already had developed his judicial philosophy and and. He, he was ready to go, and you know, as we turn towards our discussion of, of uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, I, I think similarly, will uh, you know, he he's another judge who has a you know a, a pretty clear picture of what it means to be a judge and uh, 10, 12 years of, of experience uh, on the bench. Thank you for that, and uh, Elizabeth. Final thoughts about Justice Gorsuch uh, and his first term. Oh. oh, sorry, sorry, forgive me. Sorry, I'll ask it again. Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, Brian, final thoughts about Justice Gorsuch in his first term. Well, you know, we know that Justice Gorsuch is not shy and has strongly held views that he's willing to espouse. I think what'll be really interesting going forward, obviously there's about to be, you know, potentially a real shift on the court with the, you know, vacancy um, created by Justice Kennedy's um, retirement. And so, It'll be really interesting to see um, how the court um, looks and, and what role Justice Gorsuch you know, plays on the new post-Kennedy court in the years to come. 
Um, indeed. And that uh, leads us to the second of our extremely important uh, topics today, and that is the judicial philosophy of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. When President Trump nominated him, Judge Kavanaugh declared, my judicial philosophy is straightforward. A judge must interpret statutes as written, and a judge must interpret the Constitution as written, informed by history and tradition and precedent. It's striking that Judge Kavanaugh did not call himself an originalist, and his opinions on the appellate court suggest less use of originalist analysis than uh, Justice Thomas or Justice Gorsuch. So, Elizabeth, as you broadly look at Judge Kavanaugh's judicial philosophy, how would you characterize it? Well, I think, um, you know, some judges are averse to to labels and they would rather you just look at their at their record, uh, look at their uh, how they approach cases. Uh, and so that that may be, um, you know, part of the reason that uh, Judge Kavanaugh doesn't um, doesn't call himself an originalist. But I think, you know, looking at his record, um, 12 years of service on the D.C. Circuit, often called the stepping stone to the Supreme Court. Um, and I, I think you see that uh, he he takes very seriously the idea that uh, judges are not supposed to update, revise or rework statutory text uh, because they, you know, because they think it uh, would work better a different way or because they think, uh, you know, the what what the people's representatives have chosen to do is not is not wise. Uh, and that, you know, he's he's written and he and he said many times that the text of the law is the law, and he tries to uh, interpret uh, the text in cases before him, you know, according to the according to their text uh, and in light of uh, in light of their history. Thank you so much for that, um, Elizabeth. One of our goals on We the People is to help inspire our listeners to learn about the me- methodologies of constitutional interpretation. And I'm burying the lead, but I'll just put uh, some of them out there uh, right now. They include text, original understanding, precedent pragmatism, and moral reasoning, as well as structure, constitutional structure. Would it be fair to say that Judge Kavanaugh focuses more on structural analysis than on originalist analysis? And what does that mean in practice? Yeah, I think he he's very interested in uh, the structural separation of powers. And I think we see a lot of that in his decisions on the D.C. Circuit. Um, you know, uh, I think a big contributing factor to to his interest in separation of powers is the fact that he serves on the on a court that hears uh, a very healthy docket of cases involving administrative agencies. Um, so you know he's he's had a lot of time to think deeply about what the separation of powers means and how it, it protects individual liberties for all Americans. Thanks for that. So uh, Elizabeth, here I'm going to go into law professor mode again and repeat the methods of constitutional interpretation. <laughs> Text, original understanding, precedent, uh, pragmatism, moral reasoning, and structure. If it's, do, do you agree that that uh, Judge Kavanaugh focuses more on structural questions like separation of powers than the original understanding of the framers? And since the framers cared about the separation of powers, what difference does that make in practice? Um, I think that's right that he, I mean, a, a lot of his opinions on the DC circuit have focused on, uh, on, on the structure, um, how, how that compares to, you know, what, what the founders intended. I mean, I don't think the founders would have envisioned the, uh, the modern administrative state that we have today, um, you know, and the, the scope of, of, uh, of activities that our, our federal government today regulates. So, you know, it, it can be hard to, to imagine what, what they would have to say about that. 
do you think, uh, Brian, that um, these the differences between the methodologies are significant? Uh, in other words, there's a, there would be a difference between a structuralist Judge Kavanaugh and an originalist uh, Justice Gorsuch, or is the difference overstated? I mean, I think it varies a little bit from case to case. I mean, I think there will certainly be differences in the ways in the ways they think about and reason about the questions. Um, but you know, there may or may not be um, actual practical differences in terms of the outcome. I mean, one thing that we've seen from Justice Gorsuch and we've also seen from Judge Kavanaugh um, is a real skepticism, um, as Elizabeth alluded to, um, of the administrative state um, of. Um, regulation by administrative agencies as evidenced by their hostility to the Chevron doctrine. Um, one of Judge Kavanaugh's most notable opinions on the D.C. Circuit um, was his decision in this case, um, PHH v. CFPB, about the um, constitutionality of the leadership structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, and interestingly there, he you know, wrote um, an opinion uh, relying on his views of the structure of the Constitution and what they required holding that the CFPB's leadership structure um, was unconstitutional. Um, but what the full D.C. Circuit recognized when it held um, an en banc rehearing, so the whole court um, reheard the case, um, was that Congress, the Constitution, in fact, um, gives Congress um, considerable discretion to determine um, how best to structure the federal government. Um, and there's nothing in the Constitution um, that... Uh, prohibits the sort of leadership structure that Congress put in place um, when it set up the CFPB. So, you know, the the different approaches are certainly important, um, but so are the underlying values that inform the way the judges apply those approaches. Thank you for that. Elizabeth, you and John Malcolm discussed Judge Kavanaugh's criticisms of Chevron and his views on the separation of powers in uh, a recent commentary uh, on the Heritage site, and you say in his view... Uh, referring to Judge Kavanaugh, Chevron itself is an atextual invention by the courts. And you discuss his uh, lecture at the Heritage Foundation um, about statutory interpretation, as well as a number of cases. Tell us broadly about uh, his views on Chevron deference and how, if he were seated on the court, uh, he and uh, Justice Gorsuch and, and the new majority might uh, transform the attitude toward the administrative state. Yeah, well, thanks for mentioning uh, the the lecture that Judge Kavanaugh gave at at the Heritage Foundation. Um, you can you can read it or or watch it on on our website heritage.org. And this is a talk that Judge Kavanaugh has given um, different themes uh, along this uh, in, in several different venues uh, with you know with a with the um, sort of looking at the issue of courts, um, you know, construing uh, an agency action where the agency comes and says, we have a, you know, re you know, what we're doing is a reasonable interpretation of, of our statutory mandate from Congress. And, uh, and then it really boils down to, um, is, is the statutory text ambiguous? And, and this is the thing that, uh, that Judge Kavanaugh has, um, has written and, and talked about a lot is that this ambiguity in the law, uh, really depends a lot on, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of in the eye, eye of the beholder. And so rather than, um, you know, how much ambiguity do you need before, before a court will, will not defer to, um, to an agency's interpretation it is something that, that he's concerned about. Uh, and I think it, it's something that, um, you know, he and Justice Gorsuch may, you know, we may see some, 
you know, concurrences together or dissents together or, you know, if confirmed, you know, working together uh, to to kind of tackle the, the problems raised by the modern administrative sta- uh, state. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Brian, this is a wonky topic for our wonderfully engaged and uh, wonky uh, listeners, and you know that's my highest compliment. But to <laughs> tell, tell the we, we the People listeners why they should care about uh, Judge Kavanaugh's views about Chevron and, and how if his views were implemented along with those of Justice Gorsuch, the shape of our modern administrative state and federal regulatory state might might change. Yeah, this is incredibly important. Um, you know, the Congress, you know, legislates um, on a wide range of topics and areas. And, you know, often there are areas in our modern life that require, um, you know, regulation. So this is an incredibly important topic because um, federal regulation, the role that federal administrative agencies play in the lives of ordinary Americans, um, may not always be obvious, but is critically important. You know, Congress passes laws like the Clean Air Act, uh, the Clean Water Act, um, Dodd-Frank, which, you know, regulates um, consumer financial protection. But Congress can't always specify in, you know, minute detail, you know, every single way in which a particular law should operate. And that's why it delegates, you know, authority to expert administrative agencies to enact regulations that um, help apply and enforce the laws passed by Congress. And so, you know, when we talk about regulation and Judge Kavanaugh's hostility to regulation, Justice Gorsuch's hostility to regulation, um, what we're actually talking about is, you know, a real aversion to the ability of the federal government to make sure that the cars we're driving are safe, that the water we're drinking um, is safe, that our workplace um, is a safe environment. Um, you know, regulations touch literally aspect, um, every aspect of our lives from the time we get up to the time we go to bed and ensure that, um, we, um, you know, live in a safe environment and, um, have the protections that we need. And so, you know, Chevron is critically important to that. And, you know, the possibility that, um, a majority of the court might make it more difficult for federal agencies, um, to regulate will have just, huge ramifications um, that uh, are really worth everyone paying attention to. Thanks for if that. If I could, uh, yes, um, please, so if some, I might please, please, respond to that. That would be great. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, Judge Kavanaugh has a bunch of uh, EPA rulings as well, and, and t- talking about that as well as a response would be great. Yeah. So so one thing um, I, I would just point out is, that, you know, Brianne is right that uh, administrative agencies today um, regulate you know, things from dusk till dawn for for the average American, and it's it's not as though um, people and judges who are skeptical of Chevron deference, you know, do, don't care about uh, having clean air or don't care about you know having safe cars and, and things like that. It, it, it's really more that um, people who are skeptical of administrative agencies and and deference granted to them um, believe that that these sorts of regulations and decisions should be made by the people's representatives, the people who are accountable to the American people, and that would be members of Congress. But instead, we have um, we have a situation today where Congress can pass a very broad, vaguely worded, law, you know, go forth and make sure the water is clean and then leave all the details up to an administrative agency. Um, But at the end of the day, the American people um, cannot hold those uh, agency bureaucrats 
uh, accountable, often because there are protections for, from uh, from the executive, uh, the president, from um, you know from from firing or uh, or fully um, directing the the direction of that agency. Uh, you know, so we really have a situation where um, the modern administrative state has has grown into this. Um, headless fourth branch of government that is unaccountable to the, to the people. So it's not it's not as though um, you know Judge Kavanaugh or others who are skeptical of Chevron deference um, don't care about the underlying policy objectives. Uh, their um, you know their their issue is, is with the uh, the structural protections of the Constitution uh, that are there to ensure everyone's individual liberty. Thank you for that. Um- uh, Brian, if we if we might turn to some of the other areas uh, where we can contrast Judge Gorsuch and Judge Kavanaugh, uh, let's turn to the Fourth Amendment. Judge Kavanaugh dissented on the D.C. Circuit from the United States and Jones Global Positioning System case. That was the case where uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg wrote an opinion saying that the government could not track a suspect for a month without a warrant using a GPS device. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh dissented, and 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 uh, just Judge Ginsburg's opinion was unanimously affirmed by the Supreme Court. Although the justices used different reasoning, so what does that say about Judge Kavanaugh in Fourth Amendment cases? And is he likely to be more or less libertarian than Justice Gorsuch? I mean, it, it, certainly, Justice, certainly, Judge Kavanaugh's record on the D.C. Circuit suggests someone um, who will not share at least, you know, Justice Scalia's. Um, view of robust protections enjoyed by the Fourth Amendment. You know, it seems like his um, he has pretty consistently um, voted, you know, with the government um, against those who would, um, you know, assert their rights under the Fourth Amendment. And I think, you know, it's an area in which those who are concerned about the Fourth Amendment, who are concerned about our civil liberties, um, should be really concerned about um, what uh, Judge Kavanaugh's addition to the Supreme Court might mean. Um, you know, as we've seen over the past several years from this past terms case in Carpenter to the um, cell phone case, California v. Riley from a couple years ago to the U.S. v. Jones, you know, the court is going to continue to hear cases that involve um, the Fourth Amendment and new technologies, um, and it seems like there could be real space between um, Judge Kavanaugh and even, you know, some very conservative um, members of the current court. Thanks for that. Um, Elizabeth, there's another Fourth Amendment case uh, called the Clayman case, uh, where Judge Kavanaugh argued that metadata collection was not a Fourth Amendment search, invoking the Supreme Court's decision in Smith versus Maryland, which said that when you turn over data to a third party, then you lose expectation of privacy in it. Um, what are your thoughts about Judge Kavanaugh on the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, I have to be honest. I haven't read. Um I haven't read all 300 of his opinions yet. Uh, <laughs> That's <just> on, fine. <laughs> we're working on that. Um, but I think I, it is my understanding that, um, having not read that one, but I, I believe in the Jones case that his dissent was along the the property rights grounds uh, that that Justice Gorsuch uh, also raised in in the cell phone um, uh, the cell 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 tower case from this uh, Carpenter from this. From this past um, term, so you know there 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 may be some alignment in their views uh, on that point. Great. Uh, let's now turn to the question of abortion. There's been much discussion of Judge Kavanaugh's dissent in the Garza case, 
A majority of the D.C. Circuit allowed a 17-year-old detainee in an immigration facility to receive an abortion. Some have read language in his dissent to suggest he's willing to overturn Roe v. Wade or limit its scope. Others have disagreed. Uh, Brian, what do you make of the Garza dissent and what it says about uh, Roe v. Wade? Well, I think it's worth you know noting at the outset that you know one reason why this vacancy and this confirmation um, is so important is because of the role that Justice Kennedy um, played on the court as the decisive vote on a host of really important issues, um, the future of access to abortion being one of them. And you know there is certainly reason for real concern um, about Judge Kavanaugh's record, and and not just because of what's in his record, but because of the president who appointed him. You know, President Trump said that one litmus test for his appointment of justices was a willingness to overturn um, Roe v. Wade. So that in and of itself is, I think, real cause for concern um, for those who um, believe that Roe v. Wade should not be overruled. Um, add to that Judge Kavanaugh's opinion in Garza. Add to that. Um, you know, his statements lauding uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist's dissent in Roe v. Wade um, and, you know, his statements that suggest um, a real, that suggest um, a willingness to overrule precedent, um, um, except, sorry, um, add to that, you know, um, other statements he's made which suggest that he um, would not necessarily feel himself um, confined um, by um Roe v. Wade as precedent, um, and there's, you know, real concern about the future of abortion in this country. Thanks for that. Elizabeth, this is obviously a $60,000 question of the hearings. Very hard to predict. Uh, some have argued, as, as Brian just did, that Judge Kavanaugh's statements praising Chief Justice Rehnquist's uh, dissent in Roe suggests he would overturn it. Others suggest that when push comes to shove, he may be more of a pragmatist and could join Chief Justice Roberts, for example, in cutting back on Roe without formally overturning it, which do you think he would do? You know, I don't have a crystal ball, so I, I can't predict what uh, what kind of a, a justice um, Brett Kavanaugh would be when it comes to the, to the issue of abortion. You know, I, I would point out, though, that uh, I, I know people... Um, are obviously focused on on that decision, but it's it's one issue that the court hears. And you know, since since that decision in the 1970s, the court has has issued 5,000 other opinions. And I think you know we have to think about the big picture and, and look for uh, you know the the right type of justices to be on the Supreme Court and and, and not uh, think about about one issue in particular. Um, as to the the specifics of of Roe v. Wade, I, I would just say we we really don't know where where the other members of the court are on this. Justice Clarence Thomas is the only one you know on record to say that he thinks the court should revisit it. Um, so you know it's it's speculative at best, and and uh, the court can't just you know pluck the issue out of the news and decide that it it wants to overturn the case um you know it, it, it would uh it would require you know law you know there to be laws and and uh it would require for uh, you know a, a case that might take some time to get up to the supreme court uh thanks for that so brian pulling back from roe the question of judge kavanaugh's general attitude toward precedent is indeed one of the most important questions uh, for the hearings. And uh, do you believe that he would be as willing as Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas are to overturn precedents with which they 
disagree? Or is there anything in his record that suggests that he shares Chief Justice Roberts's pragmatic concern for institutional legitimacy and might in general be willing to cut back on some precedents without overturning them in the interests of institutional legitimacy? Well, I think we can look at, you know, Judge Kavanaugh's own words. Um, you know, he said that with respect to precedent, justices of all stripes agree that it's important, but not an inextricable command. It's not inflexible. It's not absolute. And, you know, when asked to give, you know, some explanation of the circumstances under which it'd be appropriate to overrule a precedent, um, this is what he said. He said that the justices can overrule a precedent um, when it's really wrong and has really significant practical effects. And there hasn't been reliance interest of the kind you would have with a property or contract decision. Um, so, you know, he didn't um, invoke the age of the decision, which is something that the court has um, said is important in determining whether to overrule a precedent. And he seems there to have a very narrow view um, of what qualifies as the sort of reliance interests um, that would make overruling a precedent um, inappropriate. So, you know, for anyone who is concerned about the future of abortion access, um, in this country, you know, that is hardly, I think, um, an expression of commitment to um, always upholding precedent. Um, and just to, to follow up really quickly um, on what Elizabeth said, um, you know, I, I do think we have um, a very good sense of where other justices on the court are um, on the abortion issue. And, you know, one place to look um, is the court's decision um, just a couple years ago in Hall Women's Health, in which um, it was a 5-4 decision, Justice Kennedy, of course, applying that critical fifth vote. Um, in that case, the court's more liberal members, um, along with Justice Kennedy, struck down um, incredibly onerous um, abortion restrictions in Texas, um, but the other four justices would have upheld them. And, you know, the fact is... Um, Everyone is obviously watching um, this nomination fight. Um, everyone will be paying attention to what happens. And, you know, it will not take long for laws um, restricting abortion um, to come up to the court if um, those who are opposed to abortion um, think that they have a fifth vote to either overall, overrule Roe or basically um, make it practically insignificant. So this confirmation fight is incredibly important. Um, the uh, future of abortion access and reproductive um, rights is an incredibly important issue, um, and it's one that everyone should be paying attention to with respect to this nomination. Elizabeth, I'm going to ask you the precedent question, too. There are a host of issues where Judge Kavanaugh seems more conservative than Justice Kennedy, ranging from habeas corpus and the rights of detainees abroad to criminal sentencing to the death penalty more broadly. Uh, but as we all know, it's hard to telegraph someone's attitude on precedent until they get onto the court. But we can say that the Chief Justice Roberts is is more willing to uh, uphold precedents with which he disagrees than Justices Gorsuch or Thomas. So how can we read Judge Kavanaugh's record to figure out whether he's likely to side more with Chief Justice Roberts than Justices Gorsuch and Thomas? Yeah, again, I would, you know, I would say I don't have a, a crystal ball, uh, so I can't predict how how a Justice Kavanaugh um, will will rule when he's, you know, when he's confirmed uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, I would also point out that justices these days serve for decades. And so, you know, we really we really don't know how um, how they may view the law three decades from now uh, on the issue uh, of precedent. I would point out that Judge Kavanaugh, along with then-Judge Neil Gorsuch and 11 other appeals court judges and, and Brian Garner, um, the, the author, wrote a book about precedent um, 
which I, I think people, you know, they, they can check that out if, if they're interested to learn more about Judge Kavanaugh's uh, views on judicial precedent. You know, obviously his record as, as a lower court judge, an appeals court judge, um, you know, he was bound by, by the precedents of, uh, you know, of, uh, of the Supreme Court. And so it, it, it could be a different ball game, um, you know, once he uh, joins the Supreme Court. Thanks so much for that. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this extremely illuminating and rich discussion. And Brian, the first one is to you. Uh, if confirmed, do you believe that Justice Kavanaugh would vote more with Justice Gorsuch than Chief Justice Roberts? Uh, and what kind of justice uh, do you think he would be? I think from everything we know now, there's every reason to think that the addition of Judge Kavanaugh to the court um, would move it sharply to the right. And, you know, I think it's just worth mentioning one more time um, how critically important this um, vacancy on the court is. You know, we talked about abortion. um, We didn't talk about LGBT uh, Q equality, another issue on which um, Justice Kennedy often um, provided the decisive um, fifth vote, uh, also racial justice. Um, uh, criminal justice um, and criminal justice reform. Um, there's a host of areas in which um, Justice Kennedy's vote was often critical, and um, his absence from the court, the addition of um, an incredibly conservative um, judge to the court, um, could really shape the law and result in the law moving aggressively to the right. And, you know, I think Elizabeth's point about justices potentially serving for 20 or 30 years is an incredibly important one. Um, It's easy to kind of look at cases that are in the pipeline now that we can imagine coming to the court um, in the next few years, but there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of cases um, that the next justice um, will decide that we can't even imagine. When Justice Kennedy was confirmed, who would have thought that we'd be talking about um, cell phone location records um, under his tenure? Um, and, and that's why the Supreme Court and this spot on the Supreme Court is so critically important. Thank you very much for that. Elizabeth, last word to you. If confirmed, do you believe that Justice uh, Kavanaugh would vote more frequently with Justice Gorsuch than Chief Justice Roberts? And what do you think is at stake in the Kavanaugh nomination? Well, I I think that, um, you know, every vacancy on the Supreme Court is is an important one. And, you know, I would point out that uh, while Justice Kennedy, you know, often viewed as the swing vote, uh, and he did have somewhat of a complicated relationship with uh, with conservatives, you know, he joined the the more conservative block of the court in a number of important areas, you know, in, in involving religious religious freedom, civil rights, voting rights, campaign finance, uh, and and a whole host of other issues. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not sold that. Uh, that the addition of, of a Justice Kavanaugh would markedly shift the court uh, to to the right. Um, you know, we may sort of see the the you know the shift of power uh, with um, you know Chief Justice Roberts um, kind of moving more towards the uh, you know the historical um, swing vote because uh, there you know there there's nine justices, so you have to have somebody who's in the middle. Um, but in terms of you know how how a justice uh, a justice Kavanaugh would line up more with with a Gorsuch or or a Chief Justice Roberts. You know, again, it, it's hard to predict, but based on his record, I think given his strong uh, interest in in structural separation of powers 
issues and Chevron deference and, and other uh, issues along those lines, I think, you know, we may see uh, an, another, um, you know, another justice along the lines of, of Justice Gorsuch. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Slatterly and Brian Gorod, for an illuminating, rich, surprising, and very educational discussion of the first term of Justice Gorsuch and the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Elizabeth, Brian, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Madison Poulter and Ugana Etze. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team of the National Constitution Center. And that reminds me to emphasize to you, dear We the People listeners, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, engagement, wonky emails, and all-around love of constitutional learning of people like you across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.